Welcome to episode 8 of News in the North. My name is Ezra, and we have a special treat in store for this week's episode. A real live conservative. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I'm, you know, I'm really sorry that we record in a public library, you know, the cathedrals of big government. I really did try to find somewhere a little bit more privatized, like an independently owned business that has a full view of a toll road. Is that is that insensitive to say? I'm sorry. I'm just like, I mean, a little I new have, to I this. I have nothing against public libraries. I think that's that's somewhat of a stereotype. Oh, oh my god. Oh my. I'm so so sorry for offending you. Was that was that insensitive? No, no, no. no I, stop. I'm not. I'm not a snowflake. I can properly defend my intellectual argument. <laughs> <laughs> wow, cutting right to the core. <laughs> All right. Well, we will get into issues of free speech later on. Fabulous. Um, but I have. So let's start with the biggest recent news. Tell me, on a scale from one to welfare recipients taking personal responsibility, how excited are you by Andrew Scheer's victory for the conservative leadership? Um, I would say I'm a child tax credit, although if Lisa had one, I would have been a tax-free savings account. Okay, I mean, I get why some people aren't so enthusiastic about him, Besides drawing comparisons to Stephen Harper, Shear is reminiscent of soft rock or vanilla ice cream. So, like, why did people vote for him? Where did he get his support from? Well, I think that the first thing we can point to is the fact that throughout the entire leadership race, he flew under the radar. He wasn't attacked. He avoided kind of the messy, unnecessary scandals that plagued his colleagues like Brad Trost and Kelly Leach. Um, oh, wait, were there scandals uh, with Kelly Leach's campaign? I, you know, surprisingly, <laughs> quite a few, or maybe not surprisingly. But another thing that we can point to is um, really it was the social conservatives that pushed Sheer towards victory over Maxime Bernier. He's staunchly pro-life. His record has shown him to be pretty anti-gay in that sense as well. Um, and so that really is what appealed to that block of voters. Um, that being said, Canadian social conservatives... Yeah, right. Him. Like, I was just wondering if... Sorry to cut you off, but like, there are Canadian social conservatives. I just feel like I've never actually interacted with one. Right, and that's actually a really important point, especially when we're having this discussion about the conservative leadership race. I can't stress this enough how different social conservatives in Canada are from their American counterparts. Sure. Um, social conservatives in Canada might hold socially conservative views, but they tend to just keep it in the home. I think social conservatives in Canada are far more concerned about issues like pipelines, job creation, the economy, than they are about sort of settled issues in Canada, like abortion and um, gay marriage. He did vow, and this was something that really confused me, to unite fiscal and social conservatives, who I really did not even realize were divided to begin with. Is there any concern about Shear's agenda from this so-called fiscal conservative wing? So speaking personally as a conservative voter, 
I do see issues like abortion and gay marriage as settled issues in Canada. So it does worry me that the social conservatives that got Sheer, that led him to his victory, are going to be expecting him to speak out in favor of their side of these issues. Now, I think that a lot of conservatives who were for Chong or Bernier have that same concern. Myself included, we're not looking for Andrew Scheer to be an extreme social conservative. An extreme in Canada isn't even that extreme again when we think about our American counterparts. Well, right, that's barely a baseline. Barely a baseline. You really can't compare. But as a conservative voter, I don't want Scheer to get distracted with bringing up these hot-button social conservative issues. It could really become a weak spot that Trudeau and the Liberals will undoubtedly exploit. They're already branding him as a right-wing extremist. Right, we'll get to that, but yeah. Right, it's a pretty ridiculous title in my humble opinion. Okay. But I do think that conservatives who did not vote for Scheer, they might be... There's a little bit of trepidation. They're worried that he's going to bring this up and sort of mess up whatever momentum that they have in bringing issues like job creation and the economy pipelines to the forefront they're really not interested in reopening the abortion sure sure but it also looks like Scheer has some token social conservative agenda items that he's really pushing such as free speech on university campuses which really i mean when you think about what rallies young people to the conservative party free speech on campus is the thing Right. People are going crazy for that. Right. It's a hot button issue right now. He's looking to invigorate conservative conservatives and conservative conservative ideas on campus. Um, to me, it seems like a pretty complicated can of worms that he's opening. And I actually don't think he gains that much from making free speech on campus his number one priority. I think that if he does stick to those messages of the economy, pipelines, job creation, um, I think he's going to see more success. That being said... There is something to invigorating young conservatives on campus, having that sort of those allies in your back pocket. But I Mm -hmm. don't know where he's going to take that. That might have been a campaign promise and he might put that on the back burner. Sure. Right. Especially because once you start talking about free speech on campus, you start to bring out this populist excitement that you cannot put back. Right. Right. It's unavoidable. Right. It just it will come out there. All right, well, let's shift gears just a little bit to talk about the losers in this race. Mm. At, you know, at the beginning of the race, it looked like the conservative leadership would come down to a contest between the biggest personalities. But here comes Scheer making the emphatic <laughs> statement that boring Canadian politicians are going absolutely mm. nowhere. Right, so Bernie's campaign started off, in my opinion, as a cautionary tale about having biker girlfriends, and leaving classified information in your apartment. Mm, An interesting confluence of events, okay. really. But then somehow he was able to inject the conservative leadership race, a pretty bland leadership race if you look at it um, from just from a bird's eye view. He was actually right. able to inject the Even just the a race. cursory look. Even just a cursory look. He was able to inject the race with a lot of energy. And many conservatives and even some liberals who were leaning towards the conservative party found his more libertarian ideas to be refreshing and exciting. And he cuts a pretty impressive, dignified figure. And I think that that... That new, that new approach, something that was completely different than what Stephen Harper offered in his almost 10 years in office, 
That's what well, really excited me. Oh, are we, me, is this a, a criticism about Stephen Harper from a conservative? You have heard it here first, <laughs> I would imagine. Look, I could be, I am Stephen Harper's number one fan. Okay. But even as Barack Obama likes to say, oh. even friends need to criticize each other wow. a little bit sometimes. Well, I heard, right? that, I heard that on your conservative ballot, if you just wrote our Lord and Savior, it would count as a vote for Stephen Harper. Uh-huh, Confirm well, or deny. Well, clearly you're not a true conservative, as we all know, because there was no no slot on the ballot to write in your word of Oh, favor. man. But, but you wouldn't know that. You have to let me know what the NDP ballot looks like. When it, okay, when it yeah, around. absolutely, absolutely. They say they have things online, but, you know, who you knows? Know. All right. Okay, now, okay, let's uh, get to Kelly Leach, who yeah. I think was another source of controversy and exciting videos. Yeah, it's quite an understatement. Look, I actually started off on Kelly's campaign last year, even as far back as last February Mm -hmm. um, and then into the spring. I saw her as a pretty accomplished politician. I found her ideas to be interesting. But what really disappointed me and what ultimately led me to leave her campaign was that she just decided that the strategy strategy of piggybacking onto Donald Trump's populist dumpster fire (laughs) um, would be a good idea. To put it mildly. Bringing up Trump in emails, throwing out slogans like draining the swamp. Uh, like, come on. It was clearly a totally misguided attempt to set herself apart from the other candidates. She really alienated the majority of Canadian conservatives who wanted no part in it. They're not interested from what we've seen based on the results of the election and also based on how the election went, how Bernier led. People are not interested in that In that ridiculous right-wing populism that is really a lot of shouting about nothing they're they were they showed interest in bernier's new refreshing libertarian ideas and there was also interest in sheer as that steady orthodox stephen harper like conservative leader and who just has a thing about gay marriage and he has a thing about gay marriage and abortion i think what we should be doing if we want to be productive about this is at least let him have his time to prove himself there really is a chance that he might not bring those issues up. But when it comes to Leach, I just don't think that her strategy really had any place in conservative politics. She maybe had been able to carve out a niche for herself in the early months of her campaign, but really it, it fell flat and it goes back to the whole idea that Canadian conservatives are not like American conservatives and trying to inject conservative Canadian politics with that Trump-like populism. Thank it, God. It, thank God, it really didn't work. People rejected Leach, I think, wholeheartedly, especially after we saw the results um, at the leadership convention. The two biggest power moves in Canadian politics are as follows, in order, number one, Shaking hands with a First Nations chief while the chief is wearing the full headdress. Right, you cannot do it without at no, least def- some feathers. No, definitely not. I mean, how else will anyone know how powerful yet inclusive you right, are? Right, that handshake says it all. And um, two, the second biggest power move in Canadian politics is answering an English question in French. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> did, I, did I just answer your question in English? That's right, the public. I'm so bilingual, I didn't even realize the question was in English. Right, so the last NDP debate was full of that bilingual strutting. It was basically a mating call to the province of Quebec. Right, right. It was a little, hey, remember me text from your ex. Or when Facebook shows a memory of you and someone you haven't spoken to in four years. Right, right. So the NDP are like, 
Remember when we had that orange wave going? Let's talk about that and forget mm-hmm. about the entire Burka band thing. So now there are six candidates running for the NDP leadership, and yet the race has been criticized for its lack of actual debate or disagreement. <laughs> in, in typical Canadian fashion. Right. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a hallmark, a hallmark of Canada, where yeah. you're not actually sure if anyone's disagreeing or just apologizing out of turn. Right, right. When I was watching the latest leadership debate, I literally saw Nikki Ashton <laughs> gesture to Charlie Angus to let him answer the question first. Right. That would so not fly in America. No. Patiently waiting your turn to speak does not sell ratings. Right. Leadership, leadership debates in America was mostly Jeb Bush pretending he's not about to get steamrolled by Donald Trump. Please clap. <laughs> Please clap. Right. If we had an exclamation mark at the end of Jeb, does it make him less bullied? At one point, Jagmeet Singh suggested, and this was this was the biggest show of disagreement, he suggested that he would develop Canada's economy while ensuring redistribution using love and courage. And then got yelled at. That's all the funny part. Okay, Sorry. thank you, conservatives. That's all the funny part. That's the normal part. He then got yelled at by the NDP's version of Kevin O'Leary. I'm sorry, love and courage. <laughs> I'm working on it. Okay, it's a good hashtag. But for real, is there an NDP version of Kevin O'Leary? Yes. This guy, Pat Storgan, a colonel turned public servant who is looking to shake up NDP politics. Mm, Love to see a public servant bring the innovation and excitement inherent to their job over to elected politics. But what I love about the NDP race is that it's all the fighting over how much we should pursue indigenous rights. Or, you know, saving the fighting for whether or not love and courage can create jobs. Oh, okay, right. Fighting words over there. I I gather that conservatives know that giving Canadian jobs takes squaring your shoulders, looking a man in the eye and saying, yes, I am shipping your job to Guadalcanal. (laughs) But don't worry, I'm cutting Canadian tires taxes. That's where my real concerns lie, I admit. But meanwhile, leadership hopeful Nikki Ashton has announced that she is pregnant, but she is pressing on in the leadership race regardless. Is anyone even allowed to beat a pregnant woman in an election? Isn't it common courtesy? Yeah, I mean, she really, really spun this one well, painting herself as a working mother. I also heard that she is divorced. No, divorced and pregnant in a leadership race? But how? Right, this ain't no conservative race, no, that is for sure. No way. I mean, just look at Andrew Shear, you know, five children and a good Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan? <laughs> Saskatchewanian? <laughs> Wife? Right, they're pretty cookie cutter. I guess that's how conservatives like it. They're not mm-hmm. willing to break the mold yet. No, 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 right. There is order, there is hierarchy. And there are gender roles. And low taxes. <laughs> <laughs> right, package deal, package deal. Package deal. Um, a reminder to everyone in Canada that Justin Trudeau was elected in part on his promise to make First Nations lives better. So how's he doing on that? I remember when it was way back in 2015 and his raven tattoo was a symbol for how close BC Aboriginals were to his heart. Mm. And not potentially the last trace of an entire culture wiped out by oil spills. Uh, uh-huh. 
Well, as long as Canada has been a country, its leaders have been struggling to raise the Aboriginal quality of life without actually losing industry, making any difficult decisions, or keeping mercury out of water supplies while, it was usually hoped, still keeping those residential schools open. Right, a not, balancing not, act. Not a great history, let's, let's admit. Luckily for Trudeau, there are piles of completed commissions and government reports collected over the years which are ready with all sorts of helpful suggestions. The 2015 Truth and Reconciliation mm, Commission... Conservative favorite. Right, right. It, well, or as I like to call it, the bedrock uh, of um, Aboriginal policy uh-huh, moving forward. Uh-huh. Not that anyone, well, as we shall see, no one's actually taking it seriously. Yeah, you might be the only one. But it has a convenient list of 94 suggestions, and the Trudeau government could choose any one of those and be seen as a hero for Indigenous rights. Right. So he hasn't yet, but right. <laughs> he he might. When, when do you think he's going to start? Well, it, I well, it looks like Trudeau is just throwing out all 94 suggestions. And he's going to solve all the problems faced by First Nations by doing what he does best. Selfies? Close. (laughs) A token gesture? (laughs) Absolutely. Trudeau reportedly asked Pope Francis to apologize to the First Nations Mm. population for the Catholic Church's role in residential schools. Mm. Lecturing the Pope. Mm, Yes, well. In the Papal Palace. Well, he did used to be a teacher, perhaps a drama teacher. Perhaps. He slid right into the role. But you're saying that Trudeau had the opportunity to address an issue using both empty words and a celebrity? Get out. It's perfect for him. He could not resist. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Trudeau's cabinet is blocking efforts to make the Indian Act, which, for reference, has nothing to do with the residents of India, less sexist. For reference, the Indian Act is the law that governs First Nations people and it defines who is entitled to benefits which the federal government provides. The problem, though, is figuring out who exactly is a First Nations person. Wouldn't anyone born to First Nations parents get these benefits? So it's an interesting question, um, and a logical one at that. Um, The Indian Act was actually designed to encourage Indigenous peoples to assimilate and abandon their cultures. Oh, perfect. And... So central to the Indian Act is a difference between status Indians and non-status Indians. Again, with that antiquated and slightly inappropriate term. Right. Fully inappropriate. Fully inappropriate. Basically, before 1960, any First Nations person who wanted to vote in a federal election had to give up their status and become a non-status Indian. Basically, to be enfranchised, they had to give up that part of their heritage, that integral part of their identity. Status Indians are entitled to federal benefits and hunting rights, but were in many ways excluded from Canadian society, basically partly facilitated by the Indian Act in the Indian Act's attempt to assimilate and break down Indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. Then called Indians. Right. So in what ways was the Indian Act also sexist? Okay, I don't love the word sexist. Okay. But let's go from here. Sure. There there are a number of ways in which a status Indian could lose their official status. Um, Until 1985, one of those ways was if a status woman married a non-status man. 
she would lose her status as a status Indian. Oh, through marriage. Through marriage. Great. However, if a status man married a non-status woman, he would still retain his status. Well, that makes sense. A man's home is his castle. And apparently, this means that women are more likely to lose their status than men, and therefore less likely to be able to access these benefits that are provided by the federal government, like inheriting property, for example. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah, and then in 1985... So in 1985, an amendment was passed, which let status women keep their status if they married a non-status man, and it retroactively gave status to any woman who missed out on these benefits when their status was, re was revoked in the event that they married a non-status man. Oh, great. Seems great, but not quite. Oh, there's always a but attached to all... Any indigenous progress has like 30 steps backwards. Absolutely. When you think about the children of these marriages, the children are still considered to be non-status. So it can be argued that the law still leaves women at a significant disadvantage because they might be able to retain their benefits, but their children can't. Um, the status of a man in this case is clearly more robust than the status of a woman. A man can re retain his status even if marry even if he marries a non-status woman and pass it on to his children and pass it on to his children. But the children of this woman does not receive those federal benefits. Okay, so couldn't they just fix that? I mean, it seems pretty simple. It seems pretty simple, and you'd think that a liberal government so oh, committed right. to improving the this lives is, of Indigenous Canadians right. would see this as a pretty obvious and straightforward solution. What, newsflash. Newsflash, not quite. Right, newsflash, not quite. And I, you'd be hard-pressed besides making the, um, the cabinet gender um what's the word i'm looking for balance gender, gender balance 50 percent men 50 yes women. you'd be really hard pressed to find any liberal policy that was actually socially liberal right i mean and that goes back to i think something when it comes to indigenous issues that me and you could probably agree on oh i'm listening when conservatives are elected to office they really don't make sweeping promises to improve the lives sure. of indigenous people in Canada. That's a problem. It's a failing, a political failing on their part. But the indigenous people at least don't get their hopes up. They know right. exactly what to expect. I think most indigenous Canadians, indigenous people in Canada, don't look to the conservative party year after year hoping that this is going to be the year when they can actually come through with their promises. Now, I'm a conservative and I definitely think that so much more can be done for indigenous people in Canada whose lives and the quality of life does not match that of uh -huh. other Canadians, sure. even in rural and remote areas. But what really gets me about the liberals, and it gets me every time, is that Justin Trudeau can make these sweeping promises, these grandstanding handshakes, these big mm -hmm. smiles. With, right, with leaders in full headdresses. With leaders in full headdresses, as if his... It, his era is going to be the era in which sure. the lives of indigenous people are vastly improved. And yet as soon as it gets to these treaties, to the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, mm -hmm. suddenly everything is consumed with bureaucracy. Pipelines. Pipelines, bureaucracy. Well, don't get me started on pipelines. Oh, I'm just I trying to sneak that one in there. You tried to sneak that one in there. I think that we can, uh -huh. we can avoid that topic for now. But sure. really, this seems to me, a conservative, is a very straightforward issue. Uh -huh. Right, it definitely there is definitely something wrong with having indigenous women who are already victims socioeconomically far even their, their their status right now their plight is far greater than indigenous men unfortunately sure. in a lot Ooh, of different ways reading a little intersectionality a little into intersectionality it. Just, just a touch but the facts are the facts uh -huh. but suddenly 
all of this becomes secretive in the Trudeau government. Right. You know, Carolyn Bennett's just a nice face to keep right. patting people on the shoulder saying, we're working on it, we love you, we want to help you. Like, yeah, right. Has she even met an indigenous person in her life, Carolyn Maybe. Bennett? Pro- Maybe. Well, you know, apparently they're starting to have biannual meeting biannual biannual meetings with indigenous leaders to talk about how to move the truth and reconciliation commission findings uh-huh, forward uh-huh. so twice a year you know they might make just a little bit of progress and one of almost a hundred suggestions right right so um senator mcfedrin proposed an amendment which would grant these children status and retroactively retroactively give status to all descendants of these status and non-status marriages essentially Retroactively fixing the problem. Oh, hey, right. It sounds great for Trudeau because he does like to call himself a feminist. Senator McFedrin has actually estimated that between 80,000 and 2 million people would gain status. Oh. Definitely as a conservative, I see some fiscal issues there. Okay. As in, where is the money coming from? Right. But theoretically, theoretically, as as a liberal, you should see no problems fiscally. Well, I would never say as a liberal. You may see no problems fiscally. (laughs) But I'm saying that as, as a proud Canadian and someone who would like to see... Indigenous people and the quality of their life improved. This mm-hmm. seems to me like a bold yet somewhat productive move that can be okay. Made. Is that fair? I think that, that's, that's fair. fair. That's fair. You'd like to at least see an attempt to lift, may possibly two million people out of the third world. Right. I'd like with to just see just a stroke of a pen. That attempt from those who actually and vehemently promised uh, to do so. Oh, right, because Trudeau's cabinet is concerned that they would have to extend benefits to so many people. Mm. The irony is just, I mean, it's just right. overflowing. Right, right. Carolyn Bennett told the Globe and Mail that she is studying the issue, which is government speak for delaying the issue, but really concerned about how many people would become status Indians. And let's be clear, this is not coming from a place of, well, the Indian Act is such a flawed, racist, and colonialist law. It's coming more from a place of, oh, well, we did only raise healthcare spending by 3%. I don't know. Like, could, you know, indigenous people have waited hundreds of years? Right, so maybe we could sign this, but Carolyn Bennett has a lot on her plate. She has, right, she has a lot on her plate, right, right, right. right. I mean, some things have cleared up now that cash for access fundraisers (laughs) are no longer a thing, but let's just give her the benefit of the doubt on this one. It seems that in the past couple of months, Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne (laughs) It's really hard for me to get through her entire name. Me too, but like I've been angry at her since day one, and this is a the newer anger experience is a newer for me. Experience for you, absolutely. Yeah. Remember, she remembers that she has complete control of the so Ontario legislature. So debatable. <laughs> at times, it seems as if she remembers that she has complete control of the Ontario mm-hmm. legislature, and all of a sudden, she was passing all sorts of progressive laws. To the dismay of conservatives everywhere. And NDP alike, as we shall see. As we shall see. So do you think it's a coincidence that all of this is coming during an election year? <laughs> Pretty rhetorical question. No. 
And, you know, in Ontario, you have Kathleen Wynne. With an approval rating around 9%. I mean, that is low. So low. <laughs> For comparison, even Donald, not my President Trump, is at about 35%. A politician could drop a baby and still be 9%. You could actually accidentally beat 9% with just yard signs and one Facebook ad. I believe that. I believe that. I mean... Kathleen is just dipping into the liberal liberal playbook of putting together some progressive policies at the last second. And the annoying thing is that it might just work. It might just work. About a month ago, the liberals introduced universal pharmacare. Available only to those 24 <laughs> years old and younger. They're promising free drugs, but only to the healthiest age group. It's great. I mean, it's great for kids with youth onset diabetes or anyone with a serious and grave disease like cancer. If that kid had to take drugs outside of the hospital. Honestly, it was a little cruel not to give free drugs to people under the age of 24. I guess so. At this point, anyone under 24 gets free drugs and those over the age of 60 get drugs, but they have to pay a $6 copay. So if you have a chronic condition, either load up on drugs while you're still young or hold on until you're 60, people... But people between the ages of 24 and 60 still need drugs. That's true, but as a conservative, I do need to voice my concern when it comes to free drugs for young people. I think, I think Canada is already facing a mounting opiate crisis, and when it comes to OHIP and the almost unlimited access that Canadians have to free drugs, allowing young people this same access has certain pitfalls that progressives don't like to address. And I think, I mean, aside from the fact that I don't know how our already economically destroyed province is going to foot this bill. Well, by only offering to people under the age of 24. That said, young people right now are at the biggest risk when it comes to this opiate crisis. Big pharma ruining everything again. Right. All they have to do is introduce these new, you know, advertise these opioid drugs to doctors. You know, I don't believe that people are inherently evil, except <laughs> for big pharma CEOs. I, Exception to every rule. I believe Eric Hoskins is inherently evil, but I don't believe necessarily in the good of all human beings. Right. I think, right. Well, right, the Hobbesian underpinnings of your party are coming out. Machiavellian. Machiavellian. Please. Okay, right. Sorry to, sorry to insult <laughs> you so much with the wrong, with the wrong political philosopher. Okay, I'll, let it, I'll let it slide. Right. And this entire episode is just so transparent in that it's a way to sway left-wing voters. Totally. This new policy came maybe a month after the Ontario NDP announced they want to institute universal pharmacare for all ages. Now the Liberals could be like, at their cash for access fundraisers probably, mm -hmm. we already made universal pharmacare happen, <coughs> but only if you are under the age of 24. <coughs> I feel I'm reminded of that meme where it's like, Yo, can I borrow your homework? Yeah, just like switch it up a little bit. Right. It's like <laughs> <laughs> the, same the same thing. thing. But under the age of 24, so the province only has to pay. Right, right. I mean, minimal cost because right. everyone under the age of 24 is the healthiest. Right. 
It, I always love that meme. I remember the one right after Kelly Leach sent out that email about draining the swamp. Uh-huh. It was a picture of Trump and it said, like, can I borrow your homework? Sure, just switch it up a bit. And it's a picture of Kelly Leach. You know, like... <laughs> right, just r- erasing Amer- Washington and writing Ottawa. Ottawa. Instead of drain the swamp, it's drain the canal. Oh. You know? Oh, nice, nice. That's yeah, yeah. a little bit more... She wrote that in her email. That was really? real. She wrote drain oh, the canal. Th- oh, this is, the, this is real life. This is real life. This is real life. And... Who Who's advising this lady? That's a podcast for another time. Okay, spin-off, spin-off. It's a spin-off, because okay. there's quite a story there. Let's continue with uh, yes. the wind government's oh my God, numerous transgressions <laughs> against you could have just that's a, that's a redundancy. Absolutely. You could have just said the wind government. The wind government. It's transgression it's in and of itself. Yes. So the wind government is also increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour on top of other changes to labor laws. You know, it's a dark day for conservatives, a dark but day. isn't every day a dark day for a conservative in Ontario? Ever since, right. There, I think there are some conservatives who put themselves in a self-imposed coma since 2002. Some, but that said, there are some new Democrats who have dark days because they simply cannot afford to pay their, to pay their hydro bills. So. Absolutely. I think it's kind of strange that minimum wage is only ever raised using an actual law. It means that you have to wait around for some sort of I don't want to use words like progressive government, but, you know, at least a government trying to pretend it's like the golden standard set by the NDP. <laughs> oh, golden standard. For there to be any raise in minimum wage. Uh, in the years in between these raises, in the, year, in the years between these raises, inflation and the cost of living rise. So it's a system where you have workers constantly playing catch up and the entire process is just steeped in so much politics. Right, right. Well, I have, I have certain issues with um, raising the minimum wage. I'm raising the granted, minimum wage. Granted, Other changes included in these new labor laws um, will make it easier to form unions as less workers are needed for workplaces to unionize. And the vote to unionize no longer has to take place in person. Also, vacation time and benefits will be increased. Finally, according to these changes introduced by the Wynn government, employers will be required to pay temporary workers the same amount as permanent workers if they are employed for the same number of hours. This is all really good for workers, but pretty bad for the NDP. The Liberals are trying to position themselves as the party for labor, uh, and it just looks like the Liberals are hoping to take NDT, NDP votes to beat your friend, Patrick Brown. My best friend. Your friend, best friend, yes. Patrick Brown. I mean, again, as a conservative, I will debate whether or not these raises to minimum wage are really good for workers. Sure. They might be good for workers in the short run, in the short term versus in the long run. Okay. I think it's, that's, a, it's a debate worth having. It's a debate worth having probably on a different podcast. But uh-huh. I think spin-off, spin-off. A spin-off, another right. spin-off. I really think that the liberals are doing an effective job of buying votes right now. You do think that I they think are. That, I do think that they are because at the end of the day, more people want uh, minimum wage raises then there are people... Idealistic social democrats. Um, not... New democrats. Yes, or then there are people concerned with how that is going to affect um, economics in the long term. Right, I mean, liberals tend not to be as concerned with economics in the long term. Well, until, until, until they get... In, right, until they... Right, until they get into... Their politicians get into office and they just start cutting left, right, and center. Right, right. 
But I think what's interesting about what you said is that the people who are not happy with Kathleen Wynne's moves are idealistic NDP party members who really do feel like they have to step up because right. they are losing votes. Everyone is pretty confident in Patrick Brown right now. So this uh-huh. is, so it, we're really I think we're really going to see a focus on the provincial NDP in Ontario, how they're going to organize themselves right. um, as the election approaches because we've seen the Conservatives organizing themselves forever now because they are pretty confident in winning the right. election. But where the NDP comes in, that's going to be pretty interesting. Right. I'm I'm waiting to see where their organizational infrastructure is. Right. I'm hoping that it's coming after the leadership race, mm-hmm. the federal leadership race. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping. Right. Even in terms of their activism and on social media. Right. I think that Patrick Brown is really been on top of things uh uh-huh. well, he, he has a little bit more to real and against. i also think liberals I, like when the ndp sorry when the ndp critique the liberals it's a little bit more deep theory right then with the conservatives you could just you could just throw out whatever anything, you, yeah exactly anything. because it's also right. like manifestly obvious right. i mean think about it just in terms of image i think that patrick brown has been far more visible than andrea horvath has been he's i don't not, know actually i don't think she's she is getting the, out she there is the most she is the most popular leader right now she's very popular and she's a fantastic speaker and in question period when i've seen her i've been very impressed but her profile in the media and amongst young people and on campus, it's just not what Patrick Brown's is. Maybe that's because I haven't interacted with enough NDP students right Maybe. now. But I just think that she needs to put herself out there more because people are really getting used to seeing Patrick Brown's face everywhere, and people are really sick of. I don't know. I've really seen Patrick Brown. Right. Well, you read the Star and I read the National oh, Post. Oh, so yeah. That, that's a key difference. We might be hitting right a little bit of an impasse right now. Yeah, that might, might be different. The next few months are going to be exciting, I think, as a conservative oh, and you as as um, a new Democrat. That's going that's going to be interesting. Absolutely.